All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. All right, last episode, we talked a little bit about how to be properly equipped going into a legislative session so you can effectively advocate for the bills that are important to you. Today, we're going to be talking about one of the bills that I will actually be carrying, uh, not only as a member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but also as the subcommittee chairman for what we affectionately refer to as the gun subcommittee in the Public Safety Committee in the Virginia House of Delegates. And that bill will be constitutional carry also known as permitless carry. So it would be your ability to conceal carry without getting a permit. This is actually controversial sometimes, even within pro-gun circles. So we're going to have a robust discussion today about why it's important. All of that coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. Thank you, Nick. I'm very excited for today's conversation because I'm so glad to see this kind of thing moving forward in Virginia. Virginia is starting to look to me anyway, like more and more of a bastion of freedom. And I know it's because you guys, people like you, Nick, are working really hard on it. So let's get into today's conversation. All right. As always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates. But other than that, an okay person. Unfortunately, Queen of the Bees is once again gone. I promise she's going to be back with the milk anytime now. We have our political prognosticator and Resident historian Christian Hines. And big time doomer. I would have never said Virginia's looking like a bastion of freedom. <laughs> it all, of course, it's all based on your perspective. Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. I'm excited for this, Nick. The Second Amendment is one of my main issues, so I'm excited for this conversation. It is, same, of course. Our same. illustrious producer, Sour Patch Lids, Lydia herself. How are you doing, Lydia? That's right. I'm good. Hope you guys are as well. You guys are... Uh, out there in the audience should definitely join us in our volley chat. We have a popping volley chat full of really nice, awesome, creative people. And you guys can follow our podcast on all podcast platforms and, of course, our YouTube channel. So let's get going with today's conversation. All right. Can, so, I, can I bring up that? Whoa, the, everyone just yelled at me. <laughs> I, I wanna, We're all really, really into this conversation. I want to propose like. a question. If that's all right, Nick. Before you propose the question, can I give the audience some insight into us and our background with this yeah, topic? Be because I think that the audience is going to care. Like, well, why do these three? You know, what what do these three three people at this table and Lydia, who's with us from Massachusetts, one of the most unfree states in America when it comes to <laughs> firearms? Yeah, what, exactly. what would these people know about firearm policy or gun? As long as you make anything? it quick. So, for <laughs> every single one of us has actually extensive experience on this political topic. Yeah. Nick, for example, um, has served for many years now in the um, public safety subcommittee in the Virginia House of Delegates. I believe you're the chairman of that 
I'm the, uh, well, I'm the chairman of the subcommittee that hears all the gun legislation. That hears yeah. all the gun legislation. In fact, many of our audience members, probably their first taste of getting to know who Nick was, mm-hmm. was potentially his very famous gun speech that he gave a, a couple years back that got literally like over 100 million views on the internet. And so a lot of people know Nick as the gun guy. Mm. Uh, Hamilton and I have a background on this topic as well. Hamilton worked for- um, Gun Owners of America. Gun Owners of America. I worked with NAGR, National Association for Gun Rights, for many years. Um, And so this is an issue that's uh, very near and dear to all of us. And we all have political and legislative experience on this topic. So I'm really excited for this episode. Well, I think that as Christian pointed out, a lot of people got to know me back in 2018 and it was because of a a speech that it was a floor speech in the Virginia house of delegates. It was uh, shortly after the Parkland shooting. And it was because for weeks we had been compared to everything from Nazis to segregationists. If we didn't support stricter gun control. And so I got up and I gave a a seven minute speech, basically outlining kind of a a quick argument for why the second amendment and specifically in Virginia, article one, section 13 of the Virginia constitution uh, was important. And why it should be important to everybody, not just those of us who who happen to like guns for hunting or whatnot, because ultimately that really wasn't the point of the Second Amendment or Article One, Section Thirteen. And um, the the reason why it it went somewhat viral is because my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, four of them, left the floor in tears, and then the entire Democratic Caucus requested a fifteen minute recess. Um, so they could then come back after they gained their composure and talk about what a horrible human being I was. Uh, keep in mind. I didn't actually accuse them of anything except for not being honest about what they really wanted with respect to gun control. Because they always say, we just want these common sense restrictions, common sense regulations. When in reality, I, I think they want the near eradication of the Second Amendment um, and, and pretty much opposition to most firearms that are, are commonly held today. And that was actually proven to be true when they did take control of the House, Senate, and the governorship. And they actually carried a piece of legislation past the House. Uh, with all but I think two Democrats voting for it, where it would have been a felony. Originally, it was a felony. They, they worked it down to a, a class one misdemeanor. So you only, would have only done a year in jail for having a 15-round magazine. Not even a gun. Not even a gun. Just a 15-round magazine, which anybody that knows anything about firearms knows that that comes pretty standard with your mm-hmm. your, your um, you know nine millimeter semi-automatic or something like that. And so the first thing I want to talk about is what does the second amendment actually say? And what is, what is implied by the language of the second amendment? Because I recently got in a, an, an argument with somebody else about this, where they were saying, well, no, 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 no. The second amendment says a well-regulated militia. One of my, one of the people that ran against me said, you know, it says well-regulated militia. And it's like, okay, no, <laughs> it says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So there, there's two statements there, and we can look at it now within a 21st century perspective and say, why did they word it that way? And you have to understand what was going on at the time. Again, if, if we're going to look at the text of something, we need to look at the time of what was going on and what is an honest interpretation of the wording that was used. Because so many of the bad arguments that I see against um, gun rights, or what I prefer to call your right to self-defense, are rooted in this idea of a very, very bad 21st century interpretation of what was said then, or it's rooted in this idea that because it was written so long ago, it can't apply uh, today with modern technology. So let's take the first part, right? A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. Some people will say, oh, well, that's the National Guard, right? Because we don't have state militias anymore. We have the National Guard. And therefore, 
you're allowed to have a firearm if you're a member of the National Guard. The problem with that interpretation is that at the time it was state militias, and a state militia um, could be comprised, and this is actually articulated in the Virginia Constitution, could be comprised of essentially able-bodied men or able-bodied persons that could serve within the militia. The militia was was very much the scent of a, a community security force, which was there to be able to provide for the security, not just of the state necessarily, but also for the locality. And you also need to understand that for a, a good portion of American history, the vast majority of the army was made up of state militias. It wasn't even a federal army. When you, when you look at the Civil War, there's a reason why it's the 20th Maine or the 7th Massachusetts or the 4th Pennsylvania. And then by contrast, even in the South, it was the 7th Virginia, the 24th Mississippi, you know, whatever it was. It's because it was state militias that actually provided the, the overall manpower for the security of a free state. So the whole militia concept the whole militia concept is very important to understand within that term because then when you read the second part, it all kind of makes sense, right? The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So that's recognizing a couple of things. It's recognizing that you have an inherent right, right, which predates the existence of the federal government of the Constitution. It's acknowledging an inherent right to something, not a privilege that's been granted to you by the government, an inherent right. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So the first part is, is not there to suggest that, okay, yeah, you can own a gun if you're a part of the militia. The first part is a recognition that a militia made up of free people is essential to the security of a free state. And if you start to understand the history of like mercenary armies, if, if you, you read what was going on within uh, republics overseas, the Italian republics, some of the city states and whatnot, you start to understand why they thought it was so necessary for individual members of a free society to be able to own firearms so that if they were called up in service to defend against a, a foreign threat or even a domestic threat, they had the capacity to do so, but it was essential that free people have the right to be able to do that. So what you're seeing within the Second Amendment, properly understood, and this is not just my opinion of properly understood, go back and look at the arguments made within the Federalist Papers, within the Anti-Federalist Papers, within the discussions that were going on. They were recognizing that every individual had an inherent right to keep and bear arms because that was essential to their own individual freedom, and that serving as part of the militia, right, in, in order to have an effective militia, you had to have people that had the individual right to serve arms so that they could also protect a free society. So it's acknowledging, it's acknowledging universally your right as an individual to keep and bear arms for two purposes. One is your own inherent right to defend yourself. The other is the ability to defend a free state. So there's no part of the Second Amendment that can be construed to restrict your individual right to own a firearm. Now, what's interesting, and this is the part that sometimes I think the left forgets, what's interesting is that originally the Second Amendment was not a protection against state regulations. The state could come in and come up with its own set of regulations, which is why states have individual provisions within their state constitutions protecting the individual right to keep and bear arms. But it was after the Civil War, when you start to get into the 13th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, where you have this idea of this indoctrination or this um, doctrine of incorporation. It was the idea that if you lived in the United States, then the Bill of Rights, which served 
as prohibitions on federal power were actually also prohibitions on state power. You know, I believe it was the 14th Amendment that... Yeah, that's where you get the incorporation doctrine, the equal protection under the law. Um, so yeah, because 13th abolished slavery, 14th was equal protection. And, and again, what they were trying to do is they were trying to say that, look, okay, now we've abolished slavery, but there's still all this stuff that's happening in state law that's that's a violation of individual liberty and, and things of that nature. And they were, they were trying to enshrine the equal protection before the law and the benefits of the Bill of Rights and those restrictions on federal power are something that we're granting to all states. So that incorporation doctrine actually created a broader, I would argue, a broader expansion of an understanding of Second Amendment rights. So even if let, your state doesn't have its own equivalent of the Second so Amendment, me, it well, still applies to you as a citizen of the United, United States, States of America. But was that not the case before the Civil War? No. I would argue it was not. No. There, there, it, so what, uh, now, here's the thing. Virginia had, for a long time, a, its equivalent of the Second Amendment enshrined in its state constitution. But the Second Amendment was a limitation on federal, federal power, power, not state power, until— the po the reconstruction the period incorporation although doctrine. i will add this uh, th there's a I, I love this quote from george mason the great founding father from virginia yeah. at the um constitutional convention in virginia where they were debating the ratification of the constitution and the bill of rights um george mason actually spoke to the whole entire point behind the second amendment when somebody asked the whole question about well what's the militia and here's what george mason says i ask sir what is the militia it is the whole people Except for a few public officials. <laughs> oh, <wow>. That's a direct <laughs> yeah. quote yeah. from George Mason, uh, one of the founding fathers, one, probably one of the most famous Virginians. We even have a university in Northern Virginia yeah. named after him. For now. Uh, if you want a, a more direct from the source quote yeah. from that era, from the founding fathers of what their intention was behind writing the Second Amendment, that's it right there. The yeah. idea that the militia... I love this when they say, oh, well, the Second Amendment only applies to the militia. Well, there you go. From one of the people who helped get this thing through yeah. at the time period, one of the literally one of the founding fathers of this country saying verbatim, the militia are the whole people except for yeah. a few public officials. Well, and, I and love the end of that. And it's important to understand that the when we look at the amendment process, when we look at the Constitution, that's the Constitutional Convention. When we actually look at the Bill of Rights, that's not just the Constitutional Convention. That's actually the states pushing back as conditions of ratification. Mm -hmm. They're saying, we're not signing this unless you make sure we, we want extra provisions, making it abundantly clear that the federal government does not have authorization to involve themselves in the following things, right? That's, that's what's so powerful about that. And we, we, we will do that. We will do a separate episode talking about how the left, especially, but also some people on the right, but especially the left have used the general welfare clause, the necessary and proper clause, the interstate commerce clause and the supremacy clause to try to subvert the limitations on federal power. But it's important to understand that that is how that was set up. It was from the very beginning, it was acknowledged as an individual right to keep and bear arms that predated the constitution, that predated government. If you, if you want to get really philosophical about it. And because that was a limitation on federal power, you had a lot of States coming up with similar provisions within their own state constitutions to make sure that it was also recognized at the state level. So now, Nick, I, I think that you've kind of explained a little bit of the history and I think all of us have, have kind of like touched on the history behind you know the whole ratification process the history behind the implementation of the second amendment but I one of the arguments that I've seen a lot from the left trying to discredit our view of of gun rights being an individual right is 
well, that it's not an individual right. That, that, that's what the left will argue. I think it is an individual right. In fact, I would argue that the only rights that it, that can exist are individual yeah. rights. But I have heard repeatedly, and the left likes to use, it's not a really surprise that the left does this because the left uses collective rights, quote unquote, yeah, which to push really for all sorts of things that they try to push for. And so it's no surprise that they will also shock or try to use collective rights to take away mm-hmm rights that they don't want people to have. It's so, so uh, like it on was, one hand, they'll use individual rights, you know, so, sorry, they'll use collective rights to push for, you know, like collective bargaining with unions yeah. or, you know, special protections or, 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 or special protections based off of race, based off of sex, based gender, off of gender identity, based off of, yeah, income, whatever it is. Yeah. Right. And so then it's no surprise then that they'll also use the whole concept of collective rights to say, oh, well, the Second Amendment's not an individual right. It's a collective right. It mm-hmm. goes back. It's it's almost like a, a new way to to hold to make the whole militia argument right in, a, in the 21st century yeah. and say that's it doesn't apply to you. Well, they'll, they'll also make up. Well, again, I think it's right there in the text of at least the Second Amendment where it says the right of the individual to keep or to keep a barrel shall not be in French or the right of uh, the people to keep in a uh, barrel shall not be in French. The, the, there's two other arguments that have become very, very popular. One is the, the technology argument. It's, Oh, the founders never could have imagined that there would be, you know, this, this sort of firepower, this sort of capacity within firearms. Well, first of all, I, I think that's ridiculous on its face because if you actually look at the development of firearms technology at that time and, and the founders awareness of it, they knew guns were getting bigger, faster, you know, the, the whole deal, uh, more mobile, everything. Um, the, they also understood that technology is not static. Um, I mean, you, you look at some of the greatest inventors like of the time, like Benjamin Franklin, they, they were all about finding new, innovative, and technologically advanced ways to do things. And so they all knew where, where the projection was going. Thomas the, Jefferson was on record predicting what would become cars. Yeah. Well, and, and I think I think the other thing that we have to keep in mind here is that it, it's also a very, very bad way to – you're setting a very, very bad legal precedent if you're saying, well – when they wrote that, they couldn't have possibly known X. Well, first of all, you don't know what they know or what they didn't know necessarily. But in this case, we do. They said they understood how this was going. But but what it also does is that if you're going to apply that logic to one amendment, well, then all of a sudden you have to apply it to others. So now can the federal government intervene into your email? Because the founders never could have anticipated electronic mail, right? No, no, no. Your freedom of the press only applies to your inkwell and your quill pen Right. And, and maybe your, your Gutenberg, press. Your, your, your letter bro- block, you know, yeah, that's what it doesn't apply. Press. It doesn't apply to your text message. Doesn't. Well, of course, none of us would look at that as a fair interpretation of the first amendment, because what the founders were trying to do when they looked at this document and they focused on the whole concept of general principles, it was supposed to last the test of time. And if for some reason there was an adjustment that was required, great. There's a legal process to go through with the amendments. But they don't have the capacity to change it through the amendments, and so they've tried to change it through the courts through a very, very bad interpretation, which has horrible consequences for other amendments as well. The same people that will scream about the fact that you know they, they can't, uh, you know they, they can't try you without a lawyer, or they can't. Oh well, maybe that was ah, that was you know over two hundred years old. They didn't mean they just meant that then. They don't mean it now. Oh well, now all of a sudden you you appreciate the universal nature of the concept of the philosophy that was being enshrined in the amendment. Well, that either applies to the second amendment too, or it doesn't apply to any of them. Oh, I, I love the idea that, Oh, well, the second amendment only applies to muskets that were made yeah. before the, the 19th century. Oh, so by that logic, the New York times has no legal protections to publish 
its uh, its newspaper in an online setting. Yeah, that, right? that would be that would be the logical conclusion you would have to come to. And so that that's one of the big problems with those arguments where they kind of defeat themselves. Another one that I've heard, and I, I had a colleague tell me once that um, she wanted to pass a House rule that said that you couldn't have a, a concealed carry holder or or holder uh, could not have a firearm in the gallery. And I said, well, I don't think I'd support that. And she goes, well, Nick, you can't have, you know, the enemy behind you on the high ground armed. And I said, well, I don't consider my constituents my enemy. And, and she, well, Nick, that's not what I mean. You know that. And I said, well, I, I don't. Okay, but that's what you said. And, and that's how we look at this. And she said, well, do you think that, you know, your right to own a gun trumps my right to feel safe? Yeah. So, uh, so under, well, wait a second. <laughs> Understand what's just taking place right there. She's now created this new right to feel safe. And I, and I looked at her. She said, I said, I don't think you want to use that argument. She goes, why not? I said, okay, you're saying you have a right to feel safe. Yes. Okay, then presumably I too have a right to feel safe. Yes. Okay, great. I only feel safe if everyone has a flamethrower. That's right. That's right. Right. So, so how do we adjudicate? Because here's the problem. Because you've made it a right and because we think of rights as something that cannot be violated by government, the only way that one of us can feel safe is if the other one's rights are now being infringed upon. So is that the sort of world that you want? A world where the government, where democratically we just decide, even if not democratically, we just decide whose rights are now going to be infringed upon. Is that what you want? She goes, well, no. I said, you can't have a right to feel safe because there's no way, there's no practical way to understand what that even means or how it could be a Jew. I only feel safe if I own a Ferrari. And now if I, you don't give me a Ferrari, I don't feel safe and you're infringing my, I, I mean, we could, we yeah. could go to endless, I, I we could go to, we could go to endless <laughs> absurdities explaining why this doesn't work. I was about to say, I only feel safe if my portfolio can rebound from 2022. Yeah. So <laughs> Jay Powell has a moral obligation to turn the money printers back on. Now, but like, like, like to your, to, to your, your point, like, like we kind of joke about this, but it's important to bring up some of these, these points because like. I can tell you, I have family members and friends for that yeah. matter that, that will use the whole, well, it's not an individual right. Well, it only applies to the militia. Well, you know, your right to carry a gun doesn't trump my right to feel safe. I remember somebody told me that that I'm a potential threat to public safety because I would want to carry my gun in a, in a public setting. And so therefore I am a potential mass shooter. Yeah. I've never thought about hurting anybody in my life with a firearm. The whole point that I want to have a firearm is because I, I don't want people to get hurt, especially me. Well, I think, <laughs> I think again, the, the important part about all of this is what they're, what, what they're demonstrating through this argument is the either a, a lack of understanding about the constitution and the original argument, or they're demonstrating a lack of implication of what happens if you apply this new modern interpretation or they're, they're a lack of understanding of what happens when you just try to create up fake rights in order to try to diminish other rights. None of it really works. And so they get into this argument of, well, okay, we just want common sense. Well, common sense is something that everyone theoretically supports. How do you define common sense? And, and this is where we get into another problem. And so I, I want to point out that a lot of times when they say common sense, they say things like background checks, which we already have. Or they'll say we want additional training or we say we want, we, we want this or we want that. I, and this where we get this is where we get into constitutional carry. So I, I've carried constitutional carry many years in the General Assembly. It's it's kind of an uphill battle because every year I've been there, you know, one party's controlled one house and another party's either controlled the other house or controlled the governor's office. So it's always been difficult to get through. Plus we have some Republicans that won't vote for it. Can I also so, point out that I don't I, I I I'm I'm done accepting the whole idea of common sense anything 
from the same people who think that drag queens should yeah. be able to to perform in front of five year olds. No, no, I, so I, I, I get it. Obviously, we have a very, very. If you're coming from a postmodernist viewpoint, it's very, very difficult to even understand what you mean by common. That's why sense. I said, like, how do you define common sense? So, well, the way that they've attempted to do it is through. In, in, more regulations, more. So when they're, when they're in power, they try things like what they did in 2020, which is we're just going to make you uh, like, again, the way the bill was originally submitted, most of the semi-automatics that you own, most of the rifles or a lot of the rifles that you own, everything else, you would have been a felon for owning that. I remember but the same days. people that said, we don't, nobody wants to take your guns created a legal category to where if you didn't voluntarily hand them in, you would have been a felon and you would have lost your voting rights, right? The same people that talking about voting suppression would have created overnight, hundreds of thousands of Virginians would have found themselves felons that they didn't report in their stuff by January one, right? So that's the, that's the first thing. However, when they're not in power, then they go for these, these more, these things that kind of sound nice. Like we just want to require additional training. So I was sitting there in one of the years I was carrying constitutional carry. And I said, in Virginia, I pointed out, in Virginia, we have open carry laws. So what does that mean? It means that if you're legally allowed to own a firearm, which means you don't have a felony, right? You, it means you're not a minor. Right? You have to be an adult. Um, and you can you can purchase legally purchase a firearm. Right now, you can legally carry it openly, which is to say you can walk down a public sidewalk and have it strapped to your hip. All right. But... If you put on your jacket because it's cold outside, you have now violated the law unless you've gone through additional steps, which in Virginia can take up to 45 days. We are a shall issue state, right? As opposed to may. May means they don't have to issue a concealed carry permit. Shall means they must, but they can still make you wait 45 days, which is a little bit ridiculous and, it, and it's onerous, right? And if you have a Commonwealth attorney or a clerk of the court in Virginia that doesn't like guns, they can hold up that process and make it difficult. But the thing I was trying to point out is, is that same person that can legally carry it on their hip if they put their coat on because they're cold, or if uh, a woman puts it in her purse to go into the store, now they have violated the law. How does that make any sense? How, how is that not just another excuse to be able to find someone or to be able to punish someone or to be able to infringe on their rights? And the, the response I got from one of my Democrat colleagues um. Dan Helmer said, well, maybe we should require, would, would you be supportive of an amendment that required you to go through additional screening to be able to open carry? And I said, no, I, I want to be in favor of that. And it's, and it's interesting because the Democrat that wanted me to agree to her rules change, she was like, well, that'd be a good idea. And I, and I find it fascinating at that point, because again, for a lot of people that don't know much about firearms or, or this isn't really their issue, or they've never really been around firearms, they're probably thinking, well, that yeah, you, you got to go get you got to go through a test to get a driver's license. Why shouldn't you go through a test in order to carry a firearm? And the problem with that is, is twofold. One, the reason why you're, you're getting a, a test to drive a car is because you're going to drive it on roads that the government built, right? That the government has some sort of control and responsibility for and all these other things. And because driving a car is not an inherent right expressly protected within the Constitution. But carrying a firearm is. And the reason why it is, is because it's so essential for you to be able to provide for your own security and the security of a free state, right? Those two arguments were already enshrined. Now, what happens when we start to let the government come up with tests that you have to pass before you can exercise a constitutionally protected right? Well, all of a sudden, we start to see politicians getting very mischievous. And this is where you get into 
episodes of the history of gun control in the United States. I was immediately about to bring up voting when you said a test voting to was, exercise a and, and that's the thing right. is we saw when in, and every once in a while you see someone flippantly say like, oh, I can't believe some people are so stupid. There should be a test before you can vote. And I was looking at it like there used to be I'm like, oh, good. And it used to ask questions like how many jelly, bean, jelly beans can, can you square you, circle? Yeah. Can, yeah. Yeah. Can, <laughs> it, it came up with these really, really absurd, stupid questions that they use to disenfranchise people from voting, specifically black Americans from voting. If you look at the history of gun control and the common sense gun control regulations that they put in place where it wasn't shall issue states, it was may issue. And the local sheriff got to determine whether or not they thought you were a potential threat. Lo and behold, Klan members got their concealed carry permits, but black Americans didn't, right? Klan members got to have firearms, but black Americans didn't. Because every time you put in some sort of arbitrary test for you to be able to exercise a constitutional right, you may be thinking in your mind that this is just going to be some very reasonable steps that you have to go through in order to demonstrate competency until you recognize until you recognize that what's actually going on is somebody else within the government seizes as an opportunity, either because they don't like your gun rights, or maybe they don't like you as a person, or maybe they don't like your race, or maybe they don't like your sex, or maybe they don't like your religion, and now all of a sudden they have an arbitrary mechanism to be able to deny you constitutional rights yeah. as a result of the test that's been put into place. So do I think it's a good idea to do that? No. I understand why somebody from the outside looking in that doesn't understand this issue might look at it and be like, this seems reasonable. Mm -hmm. But the problem is is that that doesn't mean it will be interpreted or executed in a reasonable way. And we have too many ex examples throughout history of how it's been used to target individuals for political persecution under the guise of common sense public safety. Yeah. I'd right. So what your legislation is hoping to put into effect, Nick, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. is you want to remove basically all of these requirements and make it so that people can just access their constitutional rights as described in the Constitution. The, the, idea, the idea is is that right now, if you can legally own a firearm, you can carry that firearm. It should, you should not have to go through an additional test to be able to carry the firearm discreetly. And this is the part that I think is important for a lot of people that don't necessarily care about this issue or this isn't. They're like, well, why shouldn't you have to go? Again, if, you, if it's a constitutionally protected right to keep and bear, that means I can own it. As long as there's no legal prohibition because I violated the law, I can own it and I can bear it. Now, here's the question I have for the, the average person that's going to the store or going over to the grocery shop or walking down the street. If guns aren't your thing and someone is going to carry, would you prefer that they carry openly or that they carry concealed? In which situation are you more comfortable if you don't particularly, if this isn't your thing? And I think the vast majority of people would say, you know, if they're going to carry, I'd, I'd rather, I'd rather not, I'd rather sure. not know. I'd, I'd love to take a second just to kind of share my story on this topic. Um, I, I grew up in a family that was very pro-gun. We, we hunted, we shot for fun, everything, uh, very pro-gun. And I remember sitting in high school, probably in 11th grade, and we were in uh, you know, a class, but the students and I were chatting, and I was talking to this other guy whose family owned a gun store. And we were talking about firearms, permits, and everything like that. And I was talking about how I wanted to one day go get my concealed carry permit so that I could carry. And he looked at me, this other gentleman I was talking to, his family owned a gun store, and said, I don't think you should have to get a permit to carry. 
And I thought he was crazy at that point. I was like, why in the world would you not want someone to get a permit? There's a lot of gun owners that right that similar people that are pro gun have that similar thought process and so anyway i ended up going to college at liberty and my roommate at the time his name's jordan great guy um you know he was very pro gun he ran this uh pro-gun group on campus, the club. And as soon as we became roommates, he just started hitting me on this point of you should not have to ask for permission to exercise a constitutional right. Because if you must ask for permission to exercise it, it is not a right. It is a privilege. Yeah. Are we going to hand out First Amendment licenses next? Right. But it took me a period of probably six months to wrap my mind around this idea that people should not have to go and ask for permission that most of the time if someone is going to take on the responsibility of carrying a firearm they understand that it is a massive responsibility and most likely will do so sparingly and with um you know good reason involved can i add one thing to the whole history behind it you you briefly touched on this but in florida Open carry is actually illegal in Florida. Mm-hmm. And it was illegal in Texas until about three years ago. Open yeah. carry. Yeah. There, there's yeah. only one exception if you're hunting and fishing or traveling to and from a place where you're hunting and fishing. So there's actually a lot of people that will be like, they'll just carry a fishing pole around with them. Yeah. <laughs> there's actually like YouTube videos of this. But you know the, the reason why open carry is illegal in Florida? It's a law that's never been repealed. Uh, actually, that's not true. It briefly was accidentally repealed once, and then the legislature realized what they did, and they brought they brought it back. But it dates to 1893, and there is a Supreme Court case in Florida from 1941 where the chief justice, or sorry, not um, n- n- not the chief justice, but one of the justices on the Florida Supreme Court in this court case in 1941 actually reveals why this statute was passed in 1893 that banned open carry. And this is a direct quote from him from this court case in 1941. He says, I know something of the history of this legislation. The original act of 1893 was passed when there was a great influx of black laborers in this state drawn here for the purpose of working in turpentine and lumber camps. The same condition existed when the act was amended in 1901. And the act was passed for the purpose of disarming the black laborers and to thereby reduce the unlawful homicides that were present in the turpentine and sawmill camps, yada, yada, and give the white citizens in sparingly settled areas a better feeling of security. The statute was never intended to be implied to the white population and in practice has never been so applied. We have no statistics available, but it is a safe guess that more than 80% of the white men living in rural sections of Florida have violated this statute. It is also a safe guess to say that not more than 5% of the men in Florida who own pistols and repeating rifles have ever applied to the Board of County Commissioners for a permit to have the same in their possession, and there have been never, within my knowledge, any effort to enforce the provisions of this statute as to the white people because it has been generally conceded to be in contravention to the Constitution and non-enforceable if contested. This is Watson versus State, concurring opinion, 1941. A member of the Florida Supreme Court saying in a decision that was handed down, admitting that the law that the state legislature had passed in Florida in 1893 was expressly passed, even though it was never written to say 
whites can carry, blacks cannot. It was going he to be even selectively said it was enforced. selectively enforced to to discriminate against a portion of the population living within the state. This is the same reason why conservatives have objections really to government control over anything. And we use guns as the most prominent example of this because and maybe you want to get to this when we get to the end of the episode, but but guns carry a very important it's a tool. It's a very powerful tool that that we have used in the past to push back against government tyranny. But we have the same objections to government control over we, we did an episode recently where where you talked about Nina Turner and her, you know, call for more government control over healthcare by saying things like ins, insulin should be free. And the reason that conservatives oppose government control over healthcare is not because we're mean people and we don't want people to have access to insulin, it's because we don't want the state to have control over your healthcare decisions. Yeah. Because guess what happens? We saw this what happened a year ago in Canada, right? Where people objected to to government healthcare policies and guess what? The government shut off access to their bank accounts and sick the, the, the police on them. Yeah. Well, we're, Anytime we're, the government has control over a sector of your life like that, you are giving up a portion of your freedom and it can get to a point where you have given up so much of your freedom that if you ever want it back, you're not going to be able to get it back. Well, and I think this is, this is the part where a lot of people within a modern, within a, a relatively free, modern and prosperous society. And I, and I would argue a relatively safe society by historical comparison Look at this and say, "Oh, this is ridiculous! You're you're really going to fight the government. You're really going to do this. You're really going to you're really concerned about X, Y, and Z." And you look at me like, "Yes," because I'm not viewing history from the last ten years or twenty years or even fifty or sixty years. I, I'm viewing history for what it has been, especially the cyclical nature of much of it over the last couple thousand years. <laughs> and 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 what I see is it wasn't that long ago in this country. Which, which as much as, and again, I'm, I'm going to highlight another contradiction between the left's argument on this, but in this country, it wasn't that long ago when we are, by comparison, one of the most freest nations on earth, especially historically speaking. It wasn't that long ago in this country that the, the sort of systemic racism that we're, we're constantly told is in effect now was actually in effect and on the books, like within the lifetime of people that are still alive right now. I, I don't mean like carefully, you know, executed or selectively enforced. I mean, on the books, Jim Crow laws, on the books, laws where the government would come in and come after you. More explicit than that Florida statute. Yes, absolutely. Explicit. It wasn't that long ago. And and I, I think one of the most powerful demonstrations of this was listening to Condoleezza Rice explain growing up, I think it was, I think it was Alabama. I think she grew up in Alabama. But she was talking about how she remembered her daddy going and getting the shotgun and her and the other men in her community, men and women in her community, having to arm themselves and defend themselves against the Klan showing up because they couldn't call the cops. Thomas Sowell grew up in the Jim Crow South it, in North like, Carolina. It wasn't that long ago. And, and it's amazing to me where I, I will see people on the left say, oh, we'll just wait until a bunch of black people go out and buy guns. Then they'll want to restrict it. No, I won't. No, I won't. I want every free person, right, that, that isn't a criminal, to be able to go out there and own a firearm to be able to use it for their own protection. 
I actually want more black people to be owning firearms because what it's going to do is it's going to create a new group of people that want to defend their constitutionally protected right to own something that we as conservatives believe everybody should have access to. The more black Americans that go out there and buy a firearm, the better because it's going to make it harder for Democrats to take it away from people. Well, I I think, and this is what, this is what comes down to it. And I'll, and I'll kind of, I'll wrap up with this point. Um, the argument that I made in that Second Amendment speech that that kind of took off was ultimately not so much an argument about guns as it was your inherent right to be able to defend yourself, your family, your property, your community, your country. And the reason why it is so fundamental is not just because of the, the things that I discussed and, and how Gosh, looking over at the world, it, it's so easy to say we live in this modern civilized society, but the worst atrocities to ever take place within human society are post-enlightenment period. You know, it, it's, it just wasn't that long ago. And, and this idea that a government institution, which, by the way, is not responsible for protecting you, please understand that the police have no legal obligation to protect you. Their legal obligation is to enforce the law. That's not to say that police don't want to protect you, but they don't have a legal obligation to do so because they can't. Because if they did, and every time you got hurt, you could sue the police department. Why weren't they there? Part of what we understand is at the end of the day, you are still responsible for your own security. And you need to be able to have the means to be able to effectively do that. And when the government comes in and takes away those means without replacing it with any sort of responsibility or legal authority or legal responsibility to protect you, they've left you disarmed, not the people that were going to hurt you, not the people that are going to steal from you or threaten you or intimidate you or murder you. They haven't disarmed them. They've disarmed you. And I think it's a fair question to ask that if you're not legally responsible for my protection, but you've taken away the ability for me to protect myself, Who is now culpable or liable the moment that I'm now hurt? And so the the biggest misnomer in all of this is if we have more gun restrictions, it will make you safer. No. If you have more gun restrictions, their hope, if I'm giving them credit, their hope is that you will be safer. The only thing it will absolutely guarantee is that people that respect the law will have less access to the means that they need to defend themselves, especially people that are not as physically strong, that cannot ward off an attacker, that cannot afford to move to one of these gated communities where these laws are coming from legislators that occupy those. They're the person that is left the most vulnerable by this law. And your hope, your hope is, well, yeah, but the bad guy is going to have a a little bit more difficult time getting access to a firearm right now, too. So maybe the person that we have guaranteed will be more vulnerable will be safer as a result. I'm sorry, but even on a logical, practical, common sense line of thinking, that doesn't add up. And when you consider that every year within this country, between 500,000 and 2 million, depending on how you track it, 500,000 to 2 million instances each year of someone using a firearm to be able to prevent themselves from becoming a victim. What I want people on the left to understand, what I want anybody that's trying to restrict gun ownership to understand is this. What if the gun restrictions that you put in place didn't actually reduce the number of people 
that became victims? What if it drastically increased it because they no longer had the capacity to defend themselves? Would you take personal responsibility for that? Because while you can't ultimately guarantee the prevention of a bad person using a gun for a bad purpose, you can absolutely guarantee that you've made it harder for the innocent person to be able to defend themselves. And in which case do you bear greater responsibility? Do you bear greater responsibility for the person that used their freedoms inappropriately? Or do you bear greater responsibility for the government actions which takes away the freedoms and then leaves them vulnerable to the person that would exploit or harm them? I would argue it's the latter. And that's why as much as I understand that everything we do in government is a trade-off, the trade-off I'm willing to accept is the one that allows an innocent law-abiding citizen a greater capacity to be able to defend themselves, defend their family, defend their property, defend their country, not the one that leaves them vulnerable to people that have already decided they're going to do it regardless of what law you pass. That's a trade-off I'm willing to accept because honestly, a better one does not exist. I had a Facebook post that I wrote um, in May 2018 that I remember. Um, Nick, you actually liked it. And um, it, 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 it just, it, it really gets to the heart of, of why we as conservatives support so adamantly the right for you to own a firearm to defend yourself and your family. It's, it's a really short post. Here's what I said. In September 1986, Montana serial killer Wayne Nance broke into the home of Chris and Doug Wells. It was a fatal mistake. Chris and Doug kept firearms in their house. Nance was killed by his own intended victims. Doug and Chris shot him in the head after a struggle between the three of them in which Chris had been beaten severely and Doug had a knife plunged into his chest. Both of them ended up surviving. The serial killer did not, though. And then I go on to say, investigators believe Nance was responsible for between five and nine murders across western Montana, and one of his victims is still unidentified. She was actually identified after 2018 and in, in the past couple years. And then I conclude with saying, his killing spree ended abruptly, however, because he targeted a well-armed couple who had the ability to fight back. Had Montana implemented the type of gun control policies that exist in Chicago or New York state or California, there's a really good chance that Wayne Nance would have ended up killing more than nine people. There's a really good chance he would have killed at least 11. There are examples like this. This is one guy that 99.99% of the general public has never even heard of, but there's examples like this that exist all over this country, I'm not saying everybody's a serial killer walking around, but there's examples like this where somebody wants to inflict harm on somebody else and they have been unable to do so because this is an example of those 500,000 to 2 million cases per year where somebody uses a firearm to defend themselves. Many cases without even ever having to pull the trigger. Unfortunately, they did. But there's many times where, where, where people defend themselves by simply pulling the firearm out in order to stop an attack, stop a robbery, stop a rape, stop a murder. Well, what's and so what's so amazing is that that example is excellent. And, and I've heard people before say there was actually something that came out and said there's only 200 plus instances per year where someone uses a firearm in order to, to stop an attacker. The only ones they counted was where somebody killed somebody to actually stop the attacker. Now, here's what I find interesting. The same people that want to pretend that merely having the firearm can be sufficient in stopping the attacker only want to count the instances where they kill somebody 
But then they take those instances and they add them into the overall homicide by firearm numbers that they use to try to justify greater gun control. So even in the ones they acknowledge was this was a vic- this was someone that wasn't a victim because they used a firearm to defend themselves. They're now going to take those numbers and throw them over here to say, look at all the gun violence without actually distinguishing between gun violence, which is perpetrated on a victim versus gun violence, which is perpetrated on the attacker. And it just goes to show you the disingenuous nature of certain people. I believe there's a lot of people out there that this just isn't their topic. And so they're trying to go with something that makes sense. And this is why I want to make the sort of argument that they can understand and appreciate that this isn't coming because I'm some sort of, you know, whatever image in their mind of a crazy gun nut is like, that's not me. Yes, I, I enjoy firearms, both for sport purposes, but also for defense and protection. But this is this is a deeper issue about what the government can actually affect and what they're actually responsible for. And all I can say is that I think history demonstrates this repeatedly. A society which is made up of people that do that lack the capacity, that legally cannot have the capacity to be able to provide for their own security will forever be dependent upon somebody else for that process. And if you're dependent upon the government and your argument for that is, well, we need to keep guns out of the hands of bad actors, you don't get them to come back and point out all the times that the government has been the one that is the bad actors and tell me that they get the exclusive right to be able to have those firearms. So which is it? Make up your mind on your argument. Because the gov- if the government is the systematic racist hellscape that you claim it is, why in the world would you want to have the exclusive ability to control, own, and use firearms? That's a really good point because, quite frankly, nobody actually believes in gun control. What they believe in is selective gun ownership. There is nobody that will say, yeah, we're going to uninvent firearms. Mm-hmm. We're going to go back to using you know, gladiuses and, <laughs> and, and Sarissa Spears. no. You can't, the genie's out of the bottle. You can't uninvent the firearm. So people that claim that they only support common sense gun control, no, they support specific gun ownership. They, they, they support controlling who owns the guns. That's the important point there. And, and the group that they want to have control over the guns is the same institutions that they claim to be institutionally racist, yeah. bigoted, hateful, whatever it is, right? It, it, it just, it, that is a, a, a paradigm shift with the way that you can view this argument, because I know so many conservatives that just instinctively will be like, well, I support gun rights, but, but then they don't know why, or, or they don't know how to defend that argument. When somebody tells you I support gun control, no, they support selective gun ownership. They don't want you to own a firearm. They want the state to own firearms. That's not gun control. Mm -hmm. That's selective ownership. Yeah. No, that's and, a great way to put and it. And there's a big, big difference between those two things. So, so I'm going to end with this, and maybe this is a question. I, I'm going to do things a little bit differently this time. I have a question for Hamilton and for Nick. Um, a, why is this such an important topic? And B, and this might be something sure. that you can answer a yeah. lot, Hamilton, is let's say that, that you agree with us. Chances are you probably do at least mildly agree with us if you're listening to this podcast. How can you be effective, especially with many state legislatures all over the country? And many many of our audience members aren't in Virginia. So they might live in another state that, you know, their legislature is meeting very soon and they might be debating bills, you know, either related to gun ownership or related to expanding gun ownership. Right. Mm -hmm. Either restricting or expanding it. 
how can they be effective advocates in in favor of expanding this right and yeah. pushing back against attempts to restrict it? So, so you know, first first question is why why is this important? And B for those who now believe that it is important, how can they actually yeah. be effective in in L fighting for this? Let me answer uh, question one, and then Nick is going to knock question two out of the park. Okay. Uh, but to me, constitutional carry is so important because when I was, you know, formulating my political philosophy, the one thing that I really always came back to is we have given the government so much responsibility over what is important in our own lives. And the two issues that were very important to me were, were the gun rights issue and the abortion issue, because in both circumstances, I felt like we had um, given the government a role that it should not have played. Um, but constitutional carry is so important to me because, yes, we should not have to ask for permission to exercise a right. And we should be inclined to take responsibility for our own personal safety. And at any point when the government stands in the way of us being able to take on that responsibility in our own lives, it has created a scenario where it has taken on a responsibility it cannot possibly uh, do a good job in. Um, now, what's interesting is in 2022, there were four more states that added constitutional carry, and those were Alabama, Ohio, Indiana, and Georgia. And I just find it really fascinating that, um, you know, there are so many people who are pro-gun that may not be in favor of permitless carry or constitutional carry, but yet it is still traveling across the country. And I think people are finding out that, yeah, we shouldn't have to ask for, for permission to do this. Repeat the second question. The second question is, how can people actually effectively push for this policy? As Hamilton pointed out, and this is something that I noticed so, when I worked in NHGR, is that, that constitutional carry, uh, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, it was called Vermont carry. Yeah. Yep. And the reason why is because there was Ver only one Ver state where Vermont, it was legal. <laughs> Vermont has at no point in the state's history Never. required its citizens to get a permit. To and then Alaska so, was the next one, and it so took a very number, long time to number get a one, third. Number one, because we got we to wrap up. Okay. Number one thing you can do right now, don't be a dumbass. I, I'm serious. It, it, like, let me just say this right now. Nothing is more irritating than when we're sitting here trying to make a good argument for why this right should exist. And some moron decides that, well, I'm going to exercise my right by going in there with 14 guns strapped on me just to prove that like, thanks. Thanks, dumbass. Because now the rest of us look like idiots. Right. Because we're, we're trying to we're trying to protect this right so that people can actually exercise it in a very reasonable way. And you want to try to just make a point to cosplay. You just want. Yeah. You want to cosplay. That's what you want to do. And, and it's just so frustrating. Don't do that. When, when the rest of us are standing out here saying, look, there is a good, reasonable, historical reason why this all exists and why it needs to be protected. Don't go out there and purposefully do something stupid to try to prove a point. I'm not saying don't go out and open carry. Go out and open carry. I'm not saying go out. And, I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying, but we all know who they are. We all know that there are certain actors within this space that want the media that attention. want attention or they want to try to fundraise or they want to try to do something else. And I'm looking at him going, I don't think you really care about this issue. I think you're just an idiot. Because if you really care about this issue, you're going to understand that what, what a lot of people need that are willing to give us an audience, what a lot of people need to understand is that we are not the caricature that the other side is trying to make us out to be. That we do have good arguments, that we do have reasonable arguments, that they're actually fundamental to individual liberty and freedom and protection and safety and security. So don't be the caricature that they claim we are.
right? Com- completely just be the opposite of that caricature. I-, I think that's really important. Secondly, you need to ask specific questions of your legislators. If you ask them, are you pro-gun, are you pro-Second Amendment, and, and they're running as a Republican, they're going to say they are. They're going to say they are. You need to ask specific questions. How do you feel about constitutional carry? What do you think about the Second Amendment? Can you tell me what you think the Second, what does the Second Amendment mean to you and why? Right? It, like You need to ask more probing questions of the people that are going to potentially go down and represent you and carry legislation and take votes because if you don't, nothing's more frustrating than when I show up to the General Assembly with something like constitutional carry and fellow Republicans vote against it. Republicans that I know go back and talk about how pro-gun they are. Yep. So you need to ask, and that exists in states all over the country, yeah, not just need, Virginia. You need to ask more probing questions of your legislators. It's not good enough to say, "Are you pro Second Amendment?" You need to actually ask some, about specific pieces of legislation. Is always very good. The other thing that you need to ask about is ask them to explain why is this important. And if they, and, and if you ask them why this is important, and they start off with a hunting story, that is a good indication that they don't really believe this is as important as they're trying to get you to believe. Right, it, it needs to, it needs to really be incorporated in, into a core understanding of why it exists in the first place. So those are the those are two very important things that you can do. Be a good advocate in the way that you behave, in the way that you carry your firearms, and the way that you treat firearms. Be a good advocate, right? And and then find people that will will actually give a good articulate. Um, argument for this, not just one that like rallies you up and gets you super excited at your little core meeting, get somebody that can then take that message out to a broader audience and explain it in a way that makes sense. And that can convince people to, you know what, that guy's got a point or, you know, I don't know too much about this issue, but that, that I get that right. Demand that from them because otherwise this is all about just making yourself feel good. And it's not about actually achieving the sort of necessary change that we want to see within the law. The whole Republican thing is like, I, I don't think people realize that, that the biggest fight that groups like GOA and NAGR have had when they've been pushing for constitutional carry is against Republicans. Yeah. Uh, anyone in our audience who does carry on a daily basis, we both know that carrying is a significant responsibility and does require significant training on a repeated basis. I was just down in North Carolina uh, last week, and I got a new firearm probably last year. I haven't made it my everyday carry yet, but I was shooting it to train and realized that I was not – adequately trained with this firearm yet to carry on a daily basis. It's a new firearm. It's a smaller firearm. Um, it's a Glock 43 and it was just too small. I, I hadn't trained with it a lot. And so at that point after training with it, I'm like at this, I'm not ready to carry this firearm yet for my own safety and for the safety of others. I need to train with this firearm multiple, multiple times and probably put a, hundreds of rounds down range before carrying it so that I can be confident in my use of it in the unfortunate circumstance that it does have to be used. But for anyone who is interested in carrying a firearm for their own protection, for the protection of others, remember that this is a significant responsibility. And we expect you as well to go out and seek that training from a professional or from a friend or family member because it is a significant responsibility that we should not take lightly. All right, I think that's a good note to end on. Once again, thank you very much for joining us. If you got any questions, please leave them in our volley chat or just right here in the comments section. Anyways, we will talk to you later, and we'll give you more updates as we get through the legislative session. See you next episode.
Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.